This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Carl Ulrich. Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm the Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, where I teach entrepreneurship innovation as well as product design. Today, I'll be speaking with eight semifinalist teams that are all competing in our startup showcase, which culminates in a competition on next Friday, May, May 3rd. The startup showcase is the culmination of a process called the Startup Challenge in which almost 200 teams across the university develop their startups and a select few of them make it into the final showcase in which uh, more than $135,000 in, in prizes are awarded. So I'm very happy to welcome to the show my next guests who are who co-founded Aerate, Connor Sendell, who is the CEO, and Ashwin Kishan, who's the chief financial officer. Connor and Ashwin, thanks for coming in. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. All right. So, uh, Connor, let's start with you. Give us the elevator pitch for Aerate. Sure. So, Aerate is designing a new, more energy-efficient air conditioner that we want to be the future of cooling. So, when you look at the world right now, um, one of the biggest problems basically facing us is how we're going to cool everyone down. As a result of climate change, by 2100, 7 billion people will literally need air conditioning to survive over the course of a year. And these 7 billion people are going to buy 3.3 billion more air conditioners in the next 30 years. So we have this huge problem that current technologies simply can't address. Mm -hmm. Uh, Relative to current technologies, we actually need a 5x increase in air conditioner efficiency Mm. to offset the increase in the stock of air conditioners around the world. And that's basically the problem Eric's tackling. So for the past six months, we've been working on our technology and actually developed an air conditioner that's up to 20 times more efficient than current technology. And we plan to take this air conditioner, sell it all over the world, but initially focusing on the Indian market. Mm -hmm. Um, The Indian market is currently the fastest growing air conditioner market anywhere in the world. They're adding over a billion air conditioners in the next 30 years. So we're hoping to to take advantage of this huge market opportunity and take an awesome air conditioner and sell it to India. All right. Ashwin, tell us a little bit about the the consumer. Are you is this will this be a residential unit or a commercial yeah, application? Absolutely. So we're focusing in on the traditional room air conditioner. So mm-hmm. basically today if you were to go out and buy a window unit air conditioner, you could pull that out and replace it with an air rate. And so it's very easy to slot into people's lives mm-hmm. as they are today. Okay. So this module, which uh, sits on the wall or in the house of a, of, and, and is air conditioning, what is the adoption rate of, of air conditioning in India right now? So right now it's actually pretty low. Only mm-hmm. 7% of consumers have an air mm-hmm. conditioner and it's growing very rapidly at about 10% annually. All right. So Connor, conventional wisdom would say with a new technology, you wouldn't necessarily start in an emerging market. Uh, what, what's your thinking about, about targeting India as opposed to a higher willingness to pay or higher energy cost market? Yeah. So there's basically two big reasons that we're sort of looking at India. Um, So the first is that they have sort of unique requirements relative Mm -hmm. to a lot of markets, especially with regard to air conditioning. Um, Just looking at sort of standards that they've set for what's a comfortable room temperature, they're just different than what Mm -hmm. we experience here in the U.S. Generally, a little bit hotter, a little bit more humid. Um, The other thing is when you look at the climate, current air conditioning technology just simply isn't designed for high humidity environments. Mm. Um, 
current air conditioners aren't able to decouple the humidity that they output and the actual cooling that they mm. perform. So you could think of it as the more humid it gets, the less effective they are. Mm -hmm. So when we're looking at this, we basically saw a big market opportunity in a place like India with this massive growth, where we can take a technology specifically designed to their market and basically design it to the needs of that market. Yeah. So there's sort of two two reasons that we thought India was the place to start this. All right. Ashwin, despite the fact that you're billed as the CFO, you're also the one with the pure engineering degrees. So uh, uh, tell us how this works or, or what's your basic approach? How, how is it possible to get a 20x improvement in efficiency? And how do we even think about efficiency for air conditioning? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the common definitions are EAR, which is the energy efficiency ratio. Mm -hmm. And a normal air conditioner is right around three. And we're looking at closer to 60 by basically using um, evaporative cooling during the times of year where it's very hot and dry. And then during the times of year where you're facing high humidities, for instance, in the monsoon season, we incorporate a membrane dehumidification unit, which uh, uses a completely different technology that dehumidifies much more efficiently than current systems do. Mm. Okay, so let me break this down. So the the evaporative cooling, this is what in the desert U.S. would be called a swamp cooler or something like that, which uses the principle that if you blow air across a uh, a matrix with water in it, it will cause the water to evaporate, cooling the air, and that and that works well when it's really dry. Exactly. Um, and so in the climate, this is interesting. So the climate in India is such that you can use that technology much of the year. Yeah, right. so about 20% of the year you're able to use that system yeah. alone. And that's almost free from an energy standpoint. Exactly. It's just you you pay for a fan, basically. Yeah. And then so the second piece is the trick that you dehumidify the air first and then cool it. Yeah, um, yeah that is a step in our process. Okay. It's, there's a lot more going on behind the scenes as mm -hmm. well and exactly how you route air through something like this to gain the efficiency that we're looking for. All right. Um, Connor, tell us where this idea came from. Yeah, Definitely. Um, so it's actually more of a, a personal story for Ashwin. All right, so. let's get on. Ashwin. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I've spent a lot of time visiting back and forth between India and the United States, and it was always interesting to me to basically get thrown into somewhere that was much hotter than I was used to here. Yeah. But also to have less air conditioning and much higher temperatures in the home than I was used to here. And over the past ten years, I've noticed people buying more and more air conditioners, mm. and so you start seeing these window units popping up in everyone's apartments, and then. In senior design, which is something we were doing here at Penn, yeah. I brought this up as an issue and something I was seeing as a growth opportunity. And we were started to do our own research and look at it from an engineering mindset and identified basically a large problem in this growth. Yeah. And and Connor, so you guys, did you do senior design together? Yeah. Yeah. And um, where did you – how did you uh, – uh, develop the technology was this are these ideas that have been kicking around for a while or wh where did it come from yeah yeah so once we sort of identified cooling as an area of interest yeah. it was really just a lot of research a lot of reading about yeah. different cooling technologies um there'd been a few papers that had proposed sort of tangential systems related to this or similar ideas mm. but it was really um as engineers trying to, to tackle this problem and come up with all the different options we could come up with for how do you efficiently cool a humid environment and luckily we had a, a couple people on our team who have done thermodynamics and fluid dynamics research so they were pretty comfortable um with all these concepts which yeah. was, was really fortunate and we we settled on 
this dehumidifying evaporative cooling cycle that we've described. Yeah. And it's it's been really fun to develop over the past six-ish months. Yeah. So I would say on a with a with a proposition like this, which is I'm gonna do this function that is already being done, but I'm gonna do it twenty times more efficiently. The primary risk tends to be a technology risk because it's sort of obvious that if you could really do that, anyone would want it. Absolutely. Uh, so how? what are the big technology risks and what are the steps you've taken? Maybe I'll kick this one to Ashwin since you are the, C- the – uh, no, you're the CFO. I keep saying <laughs> – I keep forgetting. Is there a third partner as the CTO? Yeah, yeah. So actually the, the six of us from our senior design team okay. are all co-founders. All right. So to, whoever feels most qualified to tell me what are the big technical risks and how, how, are, you, how are you tackling them? Yeah. Absolutely. So – a lot of these concepts of dehumidification have been applied on really large scales in, say, like chemical factories and a very small lab bench scales. And so the big challenge is how do you take something like this and put it into someone's home where it's going to be used and abused over the course of 10 years? Nobody's going to be maintaining it and checking it regularly. And so that's sort of the big technological risk and the downsizing to the correct scale and the correct price is what we're focused on here with Aerate. All right. So downsizing. Is the is the key risk, um, and what would you add, Connor? Anything? Any other technical risks you see? Yeah, I think the one thing that that was pretty unique about how we tackled this problem is we really tried to separate it out into a lot of smaller problems we were trying to address and mm-hmm. start with the riskiest. Mm-hmm. So what that meant for us was specifically focusing on the dehumidification process that we were working on. And building three sort of distinct prototypes to learn from each one over mm-hmm. the course of the year. So it was really a de-risking process to get to the, the working prototype yeah. we have today. And Ashwin, give us a sense of where you are on those technical challenges. Have you have you done your final senior design pitch and all that? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Tell us, tell us what, the, what the demo was or what the eventual result was that you were able to prove. Yeah. So at this point, we built a two-third scale prototype of the full system. And oh, the full system. Yeah, yeah. So it incorporates a membrane dehumidification unit mm-hmm. with a evaporative cooler. Mm-hmm. It's all still in a prototype phase, and we're trying to work towards basically scaling down the size of components while increasing the performance. And a lot of that comes from using uh, manufacturing equipment and some higher scale research that you know is sort of down the path for us but we have a plan to get there yeah so uh connor talk tell a little bit about about the co-evolution of this venture with the senior design project because it's those are not necessarily the same same thing so how have you man how have you managed that and how have you moved the venture along as along with the technology yeah definitely um so one thing that that's pretty cool for us is that the venture side is actually still really new um so when we started this we weren't necessarily intending to start a company out of it but the more we read about this uh on the market side we learned that like i mentioned it is a massive opportunity And then the more we worked on the technology side and ultimately built working prototypes, that just got us really excited and we figured we should roll with this. Yeah. Um, so from there, we decided to basically take advantage of a lot of the resources at Penn when it comes to the sort of startup ecosystem mm-hmm. and look at what we could do to start building the business here at Penn. Um, for us, that meant a couple of things. First thing is within the the M&T program, there is an opportunity to do business analysis with a senior design project. Mm. So we did our preliminary business analysis there and then began entering um, a number of different entrepreneurship-related competitions. So we entered Penvention, which we ultimately won, and now we're obviously here at the Wharton Startup Challenge. So we really used the, the opportunities here at Penn to start building the venture out from the senior design project that was happening anyways. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, by the way, there there have now been a few a few people ahead of you who've who've made who've done this journey. I, I was actually investor in a student team Wazer that was again senior senior design. They got this prototype kind of kind of clunky prototype working, and they just launched their their commercial product, doing doing really well. Yeah, I worked for them for a summer. Oh, I'm you Super did. proud of all yeah. the work they did, and we just got our Wazer delivered here at Penn. Oh, no kidding! So you you knew all about that, saw the path. It's yeah. it's nice to be, that there have been some some trailblazers. Okay, back back to you, Ashwin. So so one of the one of the questions I would ask as an investor of this is, I would look at the established industry. Which is owned by people like Sanyo, you know, and 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 um, um, you know Matsushita and big big established companies who probably are producing air conditioners in factories that make you know order millions of units a year at costs of fifty to one hundred dollars a year. I mean, you know, incredibly scale efficient kinds of processes. What you're thinking about your ability to go do that as opposed to partnering with someone who can do that? Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head with the yeah. word partnering. Yeah. So at least for the few years, we're really developing our technology and proving ourselves out in the market and delivering a product that people enjoy using in their homes. That's very much so going to be on our onus to figure that out and make it work. But partnering with companies that are already in the market and being able to bring this technology out is what we care about. Because at the same time, we want to succeed in terms of bringing this technology out in our own right and also be able to bring it into the hands of billions of people across the world that really can't be just us alone. Yeah. So, Connor, uh, what's the plan? It looks like you guys are graduating next week or in a couple weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So right now we're sort of doing a couple things, looking at the, the longevity of the company. For the next month or couple months, we're basically going to spend it tying up loose ends from senior design as we transition into more of a, a company focus. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means preliminary funding it means tying up ip it means a whole bunch of things um we're also working on our next prototype at this stage so uh the the full-size prototype as opposed to the two-thirds prototype and then ultimately seeing where that can take us um actually five of the six team members will be back next year uh, for for master's degree so it gives us a little bit of runway that we could continue working on this yeah um but beyond that we're just kind of excited to, to see where it can go as it transitions to a company from a project yeah well it is universities are actually pretty good places to nudge this stuff along so the longer you can keep your your hooks into pen probably the better definitely yeah, yeah. All right. Well, guys, it was so interesting, and I really wish you the best of luck next week and with the venture. So thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. All right. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation, and you've been listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 132. Today we're talking to eight of the semifinalists of the Penn Wharton Entrepreneurship Startup Challenge. This is students who are participating in the in the entrepreneurial resources at Penn, and all of which culminates in a competition in which we give out more than $135,000 in grant money to student entrepreneurs. So I'm very lucky to be joined now in the studio by Anthony Scarponi-Lambert, who's the co-founder of Text911. Anthony, thanks for coming in. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. All right. Give us the elevator pitch for Text911. Sure. So I'd love to start with a question. Right. Um, so Wait, yeah. wait, wait, wait. Who's in charge here? Come on. i got to start right. with a question. Right, got to mix it up. So if you have an emergency, I guess what's your first go-to? What are you going to do first? I'm going to call 911. 
Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> That's the correct answer. All right. The problem here is, Carl, is that numerous Americans face barriers when contacting emergency services via telephone. What if you were a deaf individual? What if you were a victim of domestic violence and weren't able to contact emergency services using your voice in front of your abusive partner? What if you were in a school shooting and it was unsafe to speak? This is why emergency text or the ability to text 911 is such a crucial service. Um, and it's a right that all Americans have. However, only 43% of counties in America actually have abilities to contact 911 via text message. And that is primarily why Text 911 has been founded. Um, we are an advocacy nonprofit dedicated to implementing emergency text capabilities in counties across America while also educating communities on their accessibility to this service. Because another problem we've identified Identified is that even in counties that have text 911, they might not even realize that they have the ability to text 911. Yeah. So give us a sense. Are there any numbers on uh, what fraction of the population would would find this a benefit? Yeah, absolutely. So we have talked to numerous dispatchers mm -hmm. in counties that actually do have this service. Ah, I see. And what we're yeah. finding is that only... 200 to 300 text messages are actually going through to these dispatchers annually. Mm. And this is pretty shocking to us because we know there's millions and millions of Americans that are deaf, that are, you know, facing domestic violence, um, that are experiencing in-home burglaries. There's many case scenarios where emergency text would be beneficial. Um, and what we're believing based on these numbers and based on interviews with dispatchers is that the real problem here is that people aren't even aware if they have access yeah. to this service. Yeah. So let's start with well, why don't you tell us how your service works and maybe how it compares to these existing services, or is it really just the same thing? So just tell us how it works. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you can kind of think of Text 911 as a consulting firm for mm. PSAPs, or public safety answering points, which are basically police dispatchers. So Text 911 goes to counties who either have Text 911 capabilities or do not have them yet. We go to them and we basically present them with all the information they need to implement emergency tax capabilities or actually educate their communities. So we'll go to them and say, hi, you need to download GEMS 911, which is a free software that will allow your dispatching service to receive text messages from members of your community. We'll walk them through the FCC paperwork they need to file. Um, we will help them, you know, with their legislative meetings that they need to go to to actually get approval to implement emergency text. Mm. And then we're going to provide them with our packets that we've already curated of marketing materials, educational materials, advocacy materials, school assemblies, um, all of these kind of things that these dispatchers would need to efficiently and accurately educate the community on their ability to text 911. Yeah. How do literally how do you text 911? Do I literally text 911? Yeah, so what no you do way. is you put in 911 <laughs> in your phone um, and you text them your location and your emergency. Yeah. If your county does not have emergency text capabilities, you'll get a backup message that says your message has not been sent. And that the the tele the telecom will do that automatically, presumably. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And and then where does where does the who has to buy into this uh, for this to work? Great yeah. question. Yeah. So honestly, it really is the police dispatchers because at the end of the day, um, these are the people that are going to be implementing this service. So the telecom has no problem forwarding the text if there's Correct. a place for it to go. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very important because, for example, there are some apps that exist where you can you know press a button and you, they will send your location to an emergency service. Yeah. The problem with this is that one, it's not free. And second is it requires a smartphone. Mm. So basically the only free way to contact emergency services that isn't a phone call will be emergency text. I see. All right. Where where did this idea 
come from. Yeah, great idea. So I do have another co-founder, Kira Shinoy. She's a sophomore in the Wharton School. Uh-huh. Um, so when she was in high school, she was volunteering at a resource center in her community that basically worked with disabled populations mm-hmm. in her community. Um, and throughout this experience, she was able to interact with many deaf individuals. Um, and she started realizing that many of these deaf individuals did not have smartphones. Mm. And she was kind of starting to question, well, how are these individuals using interpretive services on the mm. go? And then this led her to ask, well, how are they going to contact emergency services on the go? And what she found was pretty startling is that they really weren't able to contact emergency yeah. services unless they called and just nothing was spoken. Um, or maybe some things were spoken, but a police dispatcher might not be able to clearly understand. Um, so this prompted her to look more into it and discover uh, emergency text capabilities. Um, she then worked with her county to actually implement emergency text in Dutchess County, New York. Um, and now Dutchess County, a population of 266,000 Americans, are able to text 911. So through this process, she kind of learned a lot. And then when she came to Penn and Kira and I became friends, uh, we both shared, you know, previous experiences of working with nonprofits and organizations that interact with disabled populations. And as we were talking about emergency text, we realized that there really is such a crucial need for a startup to really be that bridge to police dispatchers to implement this service. Um, and then that led us to creating an interactive geomap where everyday Americans can go on to our website, put in their zip code, um, and see if they are able to text 911. All right. While we're, while we're at it, while we mentioned it, what is your website? Yes. So our website isn't officially launched, but it should be hopefully by next week. <laughs> All right. We're hoping to have it. Be? It will be www.text911.com. So literally just text911.com. Yes. That wow, will be our good, website. That's a good domain. Uh, we have the GeoMap actually created at this point. It's just about embedding it into yeah. our website. Um, So we do have worked on all the data. We've curated all the materials. We've worked with Dutchess County. We've kept in touch with them. We have started piloting with Pennsylvania and reaching out to counties who are interested in implementing the service, but just need that kind of extra spark. Um, And really, county dispatchers have said to us, like, this is so great. Like, we want to implement the service. It's just harder. You know, it's easier said than done. Of course, there's always that logistical factor that goes with it. So the fact that we have the experience of doing it, we're really able to streamline the process. So, Anthony, what what program are you in? So I'm actually in the School of Nursing. Okay. So so how did you um, connect? So you you and you and Kirsch were just friends. Is that yeah? Me yeah. and Kira were friends. Yeah. Um, I've always been very interested in business. So yeah. You know, I've definitely dabbled within the Wharton community and entrepreneurship community. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, being a nurse, it's definitely really interesting because I haven't been taking those traditional like product design yeah. courses, those maybe management courses that someone in Wharton would be taking. Mm-hmm. But I do think that it's really powerful to also be a nurse entrepreneur because I think nurses really have a vital perspective into kind of the world. You know, we have very intimate relationships with patients. We really can understand problems from a critical thinking standpoint right. and from a step by step standpoint. And I think that's been very beneficial in our team dynamic because while Kira is able to maybe think more about the business side, I've been able to think more about the community engagement side, how we're going to really make sure that people feel safe with this service, that mm-hmm. they understand that they have this service mm-hmm. if they ever do need it. Yeah. So it's I, I think it's pretty easy to understand from your perspective and given your program why you would pursue a nonprofit. But I wonder – uh, your co-founder must also have thought somewhat about this question. How did, how did you think about whether this could be pursued, this problem could be solved using a for-profit venture as opposed to a nonprofit? That's a great question. I think for us, it ultimately came down to the fundamentals of social impact and the service that we wanted to provide to Americans. 
for us, it didn't mean making money. And we felt that if we were a nonprofit going into these dispatchers, we're going to be seen as more of a kind of support, um, kind of coming in to bridge the gap and not so much just a company trying to make more money. So I think it ultimately came down to, I guess, one, the relationships we'll have with the dispatching services. And then also second is just the population of America and really wanting to make this more about making sure that people understand this service. Yeah. So what will be the business model? How will you pay the bills? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a couple ways to do that. Um, There definitely is a way for dispatchers to pay us. So we do have basically a model where when we go to a dispatcher, when we start helping them with these services, um, we will um, have dispatchers pay us if they would like a website created for their actual um, like text 911 campaign. Mm-hmm. So, for example, when a campaign or when a uh, county gets emergency text capabilities, there's kind of like this whole like, educational campaign that has started. Um, and many counties in the past have actually created websites that kind of have all the frequently asked questions, how does this work, um, you know, kind of things. And that is done by creating an individual website. So we are going to offer counties the ability for us to make that website. And we kind of have a model of already what that website will look like. And then second is through actually printing partnerships. Um, So we're going to earn royalty on printing um, orders that we arrange for counties um, to get a little bit of money as we're creating these, uh, you know, relationships with county dispatchers that need many, many prints of, you know, marketing materials and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, it does run pretty independently. We don't need a whole lot of funding just because of the fact that at the end of the day, we're going to these counties and basically being an advocate for them to get it. But that being said, the more funding that we have, the more counties that we can reach. Yeah. So I wonder if you could reflect on being at a place like Penn and Wharton, which are, you know, pretty, pretty driven by capitalism, honestly. I mean, if you think of Wharton, mm-hmm. we're sitting right now in the Wharton School. I mean, it's a business school, right? right? And so have you felt like the resources at Penn have been available to those pursuing a nonprofit business model? Absolutely. I yeah. think there are many opportunities for entrepreneurs in general. But in terms of social impact, there's a great amount of funding available. There's many programs that will help get us off our feet, you know, if we're struggling with, you know, creating a sustainable business model. If we're struggling with different things, um, there's many incubators on campus. There's Mm -hmm. many workshops. Mm -hmm. There's many places to kind of go and get that extra help. Um, But there's also, you know, many startup competitions um, and things to that nature that I think have been so, so helpful, Um, especially someone like me who doesn't receive that kind of business background, maybe in the classroom. I think being able to get that mentorship through the university has been so, so, so beneficial. Good. Well, I'm glad that's that's working out. So I want to circle back to something you said. You pointed out that one of the main reasons people one of the main reasons that only a few hundred texts had been received even in a county which had this service was this lack of awareness mm-hmm. so are you also tackling that that challenge yeah so that's a huge part of our nonprofit as well obviously it's bridging the gap for dispatchers to kind mm-hmm. of spark them to get this service and to help them get it but it's really to educate communities so we're doing that many ways um, one is through our interactive geo map as I said um, where everyday Americans will be able to go onto our website tip, type in their zip code and see if they have the ability to text 911 to learn more about this service um, we'll have some frequently asked questions etc um, and then second is actually sending county dispatchers these curated marketing materials. Um, we've created like coloring books, for example, that you know schools in the county can hand out to their kindergartens to learn about this service. Um, we are going to be partnering partnering with like organizations that work with disabled populations. We've reached out to national organizations um, that you know are 
benefiting the domestic violence victims. Um, so kind of like reaching out, I think, is a big thing that we'll also be doing um, and that we have done to really make sure that people understand that this service exists. All right. Well, I'm wishing you luck for next week, but how's it going in general? It's going great. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's definitely hard, you know. Yeah. I think as you start pursuing a venture, you start yeah. realizing that it really does take a lot of time to get it off its feet. Um, we started over the summer and, you know, every day we're working to create the packages, to conduct interviews, to learn more about our venture. Um, and I think it definitely, you know, is challenging to balance at times with your classes and whatnot. But it's going really great. I think we are at a place right now where we're really ready to start um actually making these, you know, decisions to go ahead and start working with counties. I think it's been a lot of legwork to understand how to implement emergency text, to work with Dutchess County to see what went good, what went bad, and, of course, to curate all the marketing materials um, that we've done. So it's been a lot of fun. All right. Well, we're going to point our listeners to your website, which will be up soon, yes. next week. Yes. Text 911. Correct. You can also follow us on Instagram at text 911 official. All right. Text 911 official or text911.com. All right. Anthony, thanks so much for coming Thank in. Thank you so Super much, Carl. Really appreciate it. All right. Coming up, I'll speak with the founder of Flourish Change, a micro donation and donor analytics platform that helps nonprofits maximize their fundraising. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation, and you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.